everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my name is Max Thomas. Thanks for stopping by today. Um, today, we're going to continue talking about the church, and uh, you're going to listen to a conversation I had a little bit ago with um, a man named Greg Coles. Uh, Greg is the author of two books, uh, the first being Single Gay Christian, A Personal Journey of Faith and Sexual Identity, and the uh, second and most recent book is called No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation. And uh, Greg is just about to begin um, new work with the Center of Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, where he'll be doing writing and, and speaking for them. And I first came across uh, Greg's work uh, when I was doing some reading and research on uh, sexuality and, and uh, the intersection of theology and culture and sexuality. And I, um, I really was intrigued by uh, the way that Greg talked about those, th- those things coming together. And uh, specifically, Greg uh, gave some language that I thought was really helpful around the idea of belonging and the church being a place of belonging, the Christian faith being a faith of belonging, Christ being a, a Christ, a Messiah, a God of belonging, and how the church uh, in recent years has unfortunately taken up a couple of issues, sexuality being one of them, and so our conversation kind of does uh, lean that way, uh, and it's what he's uh, written about and is, is most familiar with, uh, just in his own journey, um, but unfortunately, we much of the church has kind of taken this stance of of uh, culture wars and fighting culture wars, and so we have this broader discussion to begin with about uh, the church's relationship to culture, and then we begin to talk about um, sexuality and the church's uh, theology of sexuality, not what's right, what's wrong, but more of how, how do we uh, be a people of belonging and how do we set ourselves up in a way as the people of God um, to be a loving, merciful, gracious people um, and how do we get out of this idea of us versus them, culture wars, we need to win this fight and these people are trying to, you know, destroy America or whatever, uh, whatever you want to say. And so we have a, a really great conversation. I honestly had a blast with Greg. Um, we tried to record the first night and I was having all kinds of internet and power issues. And so we just ended up kind of talking for about 35 minutes and then had to record, uh, the next night and, uh, had so much fun doing it. Well, we laugh a ton. And so I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation. And so, uh, without any further delay, uh, here's my conversation with Greg Coles. Okay, I've got Greg Coles with me on the podcast. Greg, thank you for hopping on. This is actually our second time hopping on together. Nobody else knows this, but we tried to hop on last night, and I live in the Middle East, and so the internet wasn't cooperating, so we're going to try this again. Uh, Good to see you two times in the last 24 hours. Oh, it's a pleasure both both times around. I feel like we're really getting to know each other. We can make a regular habit. There you go. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um. Okay, so we're, we're going to talk about the relationship in the church and culture and um, what are, I think, often called like the culture wars, and hopefully we'll maybe define that idea a little bit together. Um, but first, I thought 
you could, because we were joking about this actually before we were recording. So it just came to my mind and I'm going to spring it on you now. Um, I want you to settle a debate for me that me and my wife have all the time because she'll listen to this because she's one of the first people to always listen to these episodes. <laughs> and that is this. Do I need to burn all of my Harry Potter books? Uh, uh, well, so, I mean, I would, I would say, I would say no. Um, I, I happen to have found great edification from Harry Potter, uh, which, I mean, depending on who you talk to, this may or may not be controversial. One time I was preaching a sermon um, and I was, I was talking about the principle that there are, uh, there, there are themes of the gospel that are interwoven into, into the world itself. In all the best stories that we tell have these gospel themes within them. And I made the point by talking about something from the seventh Harry Potter book. And afterwards, I had some congregants up in arms um, being like, how could you? Um, but I will say this. So uh, not to spoil anything from the seventh Harry Potter book, for those of you who are somehow willing to read them, but haven't gotten there yet. And 20 um, years behind. Yeah. 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 Somehow. But but I'll, I'll just say this about the seventh Harry Potter book, that there is uh, there is some some imagery within that narrative that for those with eyes to see, it is a beautiful picture of the gospel. It is so beautiful that when I got to it, I wept for like an hour uh, and I still I still mark that reading as as like one of the one of the most substantial uh one of the most spiritually substantial moments for me of uh, my high school experience, not because it like shaped my theology in some notable way. Um, I, I still believe theologically the same thing before as I did afterwards. And there was no witchcraft in my theology. My, my appreciation of Harry Potter is not like my Wiccan roots or something. No, no, no. Um, it, nice Orthodox theology. Um, but, but that experience, uh, it, it hit me emotionally. Um, some of the, the costliness of the gospel uh, struck me um, through that story in a way that it had not previously struck me, in a way that before the costliness of the gospel had felt like this sort of abstract principle, like, oh, isn't that nice when sometimes people give up their lives? Oh, what a happy theme, you know, but it, but it hit me on, on a very like heart gut level. Um, and, and it was, it was transformative for me. So, yeah. Uh, so I grew up in a in a world that whenever the preacher wanted to talk about how we should like be different from the world. And this is gets exactly what I want to point on, which I actually just pause. I'm for, this is an audio only podcast, so nobody can see, but I'm doing the timeout thing with my hands. I just want to keep score that that's one person on my side, zero people on my wife's side. Cause my wife does not, <laughs> does not want, want uh, Harry Potter. Anyway, so I'll take that as a, as a victory. I'll take my victory lap after she listens to this. <laughs> but so thank you for that. Um, I'm probably still down and we've been married almost 10 years. I'm probably still down by about 100,000, but catching up one point at a time. <laughs> but anyway, I grew, up, I grew up in this kind of culture that the, whenever the kind of the trope was when we wanted to talk about how to be different from the culture, we would talk about Harry Potter and, um, you know, being not reading those and their witchcraft and look how, when we want to talk about how godless our culture has gotten, you know, the preacher would bring up, look at the best-selling book in the world is these books about magic and spells and 
if you read these, you're going to be demon possessed and you're going to open up demons in your home and your kids and all these things. And so I never read them. And then this year in quarantine, like everybody, I had a whole bunch of time, extra time on my hands. And my wife was uh, finishing her master's degree and I had just finished mine. And so she was, uh, she's a, a doctor. So she was off doing her clinicals and I was kind of like stay at home dad. And so I just plowed through all seven of the Harry Potter books uh, this summer. I finally read them just this last summer. And I had the same experience that you had. Uh, and actually, I'd, I had a, a couple of those moments throughout the, the reading of those books. But Harry Potter is just, a, to me, a funny example to get to, I think, a more serious conversation, that, which is why you're here, is um, for many of us who are about our age, I'm in my mid-30s. How old are you? Craig? 31. So 31. yeah, close okay. enough. Okay. Yeah. I'm 33. And so we both grew up kind of in the middle of the culture wars mm -hmm. where the church drew some hard lines in the sand around a couple of issues, uh, uh, sexuality issues, life issues. And we started to see kind of melding of those things with uh, Republican party, political stuff, typically. So obviously a little bit of a generalization, generalization, but in the evangelical world, that's definitely what it, what it's been. And, um, and it was just like kind of these selected few things and the church, I mean, I grew up hearing this narrative of, Hey, look at this issue. Look at this issue. We need to go fight over these issues mm -hmm. in the culture mm -hmm. to bring, win America back for God bring America back to the gospel, all of these kinds of things. And it was, I mean, lots of dollars got poured into those things, lots of time, lots of energy, prayer meetings, conferences, like the whole, the whole nine yards. And now I'm 33 and I'm older and I've been through a little bit of an, enough to go, is, is that how we should be relating to the culture at large, um, I mean, especially when we start talking about some of those more difficult issues, uh, I'll just throw a kind of general softball question at you here to get things going. What do you see as the problem when we even frame even some of those issues as important as they are? And we'll probably talk at least about one or two of them in, specifically, just I think we'll probably end up getting there. But just in general, when we frame that conversation with phrases like culture war or uh, bringing America back to God or taking America back for God or all of that kind of language. Mm -hmm. when, it's, when the whole conversation is framed around those kinds of things, what, what hits you as the, maybe the problem with that? How, does that? how does that help? How does that shape even the conversation and actions and everything moving forward? Yeah, I, th I think the, the number one thing that strikes me uh, is that there's, there's always this, this temptation within the human heart uh, to want to look at the world in terms of uh, uh, a, a nice, tidy dichotomy between uh, the, the good and the bad, the people we like and the people we don't like, and so on. Um, and and, and our, our temptation is to always draw those lines in such a way that we always end up on the good side. Uh, 
So we're like, we're out on the hunt for sin in the world. And remarkably, it turns out that sin in the world can be located in other people's lives. Um, uh, and, and I think when, when, we, when we enter into a framing like the, the culture war, um, it turns out that, that there, are, there are sides in the war um, and the side that we are on uh, mu must, be, must be the correct one. Um, and we sort of miss the, I think it was Solzhenitsyn who said, um, the, the dividing line between good and evil runs through every human heart. Um, uh, or, or I think this is, uh, this is very much the, the, the posture that uh, the Apostle Paul brings uh, in, in Romans chapter one, and then leading us into verse two, where he sort of begins by talking about like, ah, we see, we see these examples of people having uh, having missed out on, on following God. You know, we see these sort of dramatic examples that we can point to other people's lives. And he sort of got his readers on board being like, ah, yes, like these people clearly don't follow Jesus. And he sort of like cues everything up, like you're all ready to throw the stones. And then we get to the beginning of Romans chapter two. And Paul says like, therefore you have no excuse, you who cast judgment on someone else, because at whatever point you cast judgment on somebody else, you yourself stand condemned. You already do the very same things. Um, there's There's this sense in which, uh, the, the move that the Bible asks us to make is to stop being so eager uh, to, to find the sin in other people's lives and in, instead to, to turn our gaze toward ourselves and say, like, let me let me reckon first with with the sin that exists within within me. Um, and, and I think uh, when it when it comes to how we engage with particular elements of culture, then um, uh, if, if we draw a line that says the, the cultural things, you know, the, the movies, the books, the et cetera, that are produced by the people in my camp, those are all categorical goods. Everything that they, everything that they claim, everything that they imply is categorically good. And the things produced by people with whom I have any kind of theological disagreement are all therefore categorically bad. They're not worth engaging with, so on and so forth. Um, it, it's problematic in part because it doesn't, it, again, it doesn't fit the model that is given to us in, in scripture. Uh, sometimes when I'm, when I'm discussing, when I'm discussing Harry Potter with people, which obviously I do all the time, um, you didn't realize you asked me on here to talk about Harry Potter, Max, but here we are. Bring it, um, bring it. My wife will <laughs> learn something. Bring it. Um, so, uh, so, so there's, the, there's this wonderful moment uh, in uh, Acts chapter 17, um, where uh, the, the Apostle Paul is uh, speaking to uh, the, people in, the people in Athens, his, his Mars Hill sermon. Um, and, and the way that he approaches this conversation um, is not by saying, look, you pagans, you're doing everything wrong. Um, what he actually says is, hey, people of Athens, I see that you are very spiritual people. Um, I look around and I see all these altars. And he's like, I even see this altar to an unknown God. Um, now, now, what is unknown, I'm going to make known to you. In other words, he, he finds the aspect of the culture that exists. And instead of saying like, this is a thing to war against, this is a thing to be crushed down. He says like, there is something here. There's something that you honor and hold dear that speaks to the truth of the gospel. And then he goes on. And, and this, is, this, is my, this is my favorite part of how this plays out when, when uh, Paul is giving this sermon. Um, uh, he goes on to, to, to quote, he says, um, uh, for in him, speaking of God, for in him, we, we live and move and have our being. Um, and, uh, even as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. 
Um, now, both of these quotes, they come from two different Greek poets, two pagan poets, um, and the he uh, who's being referenced, uh, in him we live and move and have our being, we are his offspring, that he is originally a reference to Zeus. Um, uh, and, and so what, what Paul does with this pagan literature is not be like, no, but no, burned my copy of Erratus, you know, like, no, what he says is like, actually, like, I'm so well read in your pagan poets, um, that I can identify the truth of the gospel within them. And then I can have an intelligible conversation with you about the fact that that thing that you're searching for that thing that you're longing for is indeed the very person of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and so there, there's, there's an invitation there in, I think, how we engage the world around us. Um, and if all we ever do with Harry Potter or any, any other component of the culture war, if all we ever do is try to burn it down, we miss the opportunity to build those bridges for gospel connection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all, that whole, that section of scripture is really challenging when you start thinking about something like inspiration, the inspiration of scripture. I just... That's like case number one of challenge, it channel like challenging inspiration and how that works. But we'll leave that aside. You brought up a, a point that I think is what I'm even honestly most interested in as somebody who's been a pastor, has been in ministry in the past. And that is how we read the Bible that leads to some of these conversations. So you had said, you know, we read the Bible in particular ways um, and that lead us to reading our life in particular ways. So we, we read the Bible where we are always the good guy. They are always the bad guy, whoever they is. Um, and then we just look out in the world and we see ourselves as the standard bearers of righteousness, you know, and the, the world is the wicked Canaanites or the Babylonians or whoever, whoever, whoever. But, and so it's just this very, how you put it, this very like black and white, dualistic, good guy, bad guy. These are the characters, whatever. But to me, that is a really poor reading of scripture on a whole bunch of different levels. The story that came to my mind when you were thinking, because I was just reading this couple of days ago is the story of, of Abraham going down into Egypt. And so in, in Genesis, you know, uh, 16, I think it is he 15, he goes down to Egypt. He offers his wife. He lies to save his own skin, offers his wife to the Pharaoh says he's, she's his sister. Pharaoh finds out, why would you do this? Da, 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 da. And Abraham stays there a while and Pharaoh gives him all of these things, riches and gold and sheep and goats. And it also says servants, male and female servants. Well, they leave and Sarah's still not pregnant. And she goes, oh, we just got this Egyptian servant, this Egyptian slave, Hagar, uh, whose name literally means the immigrant. So we have this immigrant and go into her. And so Abraham essentially rapes her, how you want to understand that. I mean, doesn't seem like she was probably super, that was super consensual, uh, not his wife. She's not his wife, uh, takes advantage of her and she gets pregnant and he sends her away to die essentially. And she is 
out in the desert on her way back to Egypt and by this river and the angel of the Lord shows up to her. And always a careful reading of the scripture. And we just fast forward like one book and the roles of that are reversed. We now have Egypt in power and Israel has to go down to Egypt. And now they're the slaves trying to, to get out. And so a way to read the story is to say, actually, before Egypt oppressed Israel, Israel oppressed Egypt. Before Israel suffered as slaves under Pharaoh, the Egyptian immigrant suffered as a slave under Abraham. And so the, the, the roles are not easily distinguishable all of the time is my point. Like you get this and and that's like a more macro one, like example, but you get examples of this all the time of men and women in scripture playing the bad guy in the story. Sure. Um, and it, it just, I mean, Dave, we love to think about David as this shining example of the one who brought the kingdom and glory and tabernacle and man after God's own heart and wrote all these Psalms and he's the poet and he's, you know, he's like the Bob Dylan of his day singing, singing to Jesus. And he's this righteous guy. And all I have to do is read the end of the story. I, I think, and the last thing on his lips are, Hey, uh, I know that like I vowed to the Lord that I would never take vengeance on people who wronged me, but I never promised that someone else couldn't for me. So here's what I want you to do. Go and kill. And I can't remember the names off the top of my head now, but go and kill. And he lists two people, go kill them. And then the, the, the story ends and David rested and went with his <clears> father. So literally the last thing on David's lips is go and kill other people. Because I told Jesus, I told God, like, I wouldn't, but you know, I really want my vengeance. So you go do it for me. Take them down to the grave. So, so what is David a man after God's own heart? Or is he this like vengeful murderer who not only murdered uh, Bathsheba's husband, his last words are words to go and murder multiple people. Like this is the last thing that he says. And I think we need better way, all that to say, we need better ways of reading scripture to see ourselves properly so that we can see the world properly so that we don't become an Abraham to a worldly Hagar. Like, so we don't actually become the abusers because we're supposedly, I mean, I think you can read that story to say Abraham, because he thought he was God's chosen, thought that was a license for him to do what he wanted as God's chosen and use people and abuse people because he thought he had this golden ticket of righteousness, essentially. And I fear that we do that with a host of host of issues where it's like, yeah, hey, we we're the church, we're God's chosen people. And so that means we get to set all of these kinds of rules and, and hold the, the power in the culture 
and do whatever it means to hold that power in culture, no matter who it hurts. And because we have this divine right to uphold this, this thing, and we actually become oppressors of, of other people. Um, how flesh out a little bit more on how do we, how do we begin to reimagine, not reimagine, but how do we begin be, be better readers of scripture um, so that we can actually properly understand ourselves and the world and relate to relate to the world in a, in a healthier way? Yeah. You know, uh, we were talking earlier uh, before we hit record about our mutual appreciation of N.T. Wright. Um, uh, N.T. Wright uh, has, has this, this wonderful uh, idea that he fleshes out in, oh, which book is it? I, I believe it's Scripture and the Authority of God, um, uh, which, if you haven't read it, is remarkable and delightful. Um, one, of the, one of the big arguments he makes in that book uh, is that our engagement with scripture should not fundamentally be seeking to distill it into some, some sort of flat facts that we can then be like, I am accruing facts about God by reading scripture. Uh, he says, scripture is intentionally a narrative uh, that you are called to, to join in on, um, uh, that, that, that you're called to, to, to read scripture as somebody who then becomes a participant in the ongoing work of the kingdom of God. Um, and I think as we, uh, as we engage scripture in that way and ask, okay, what's the, what's the, the nature of the story that's, that's being told here? And then where do, where do I fit into the arc of that story? Um, I think it, it's important that we, because uh, if we try to flatten it down and be like, okay, God said this nice thing to the nation that he liked, which at the time was Israel. Now I'm in America, and that obviously is the nation that God likes now. So I'm just going to take whatever God said about Israel in like the book of Isaiah and be like, this is now what the Lord saith to America in the 21st century. If my people um, who are called by my name will humble themselves in <laughs> Right. And, and, and so the, the problem is that by, by trying to flatten it, right, by dechronologizing uh, the story um, and turning it into these discrete factoids, um, uh, then we end up really, really misapplying what, what scripture would say to our current moment. Uh, and I, I think this is especially true um, when, when we think about the role that America plays in the world right now, um, uh, which uh, is, is, to my mind, much more harrowingly close to something like the Babylon described in Revelation than it is to the, the pre-Jesus kingdom of Israel um, that we're seeing in the book of Isaiah. Um, or, or it's something more like the prophet Ezekiel's description of the city of Sodom, right? Like, this was the sin of your sister, uh, your sister Sodom, that like, she was overfed and inhospitable, you know, like, she didn't help the needy and the foreigner. Um, uh, like, yeah, I, um, it, so it's interesting for me because I did not grow up in America. Uh, I am an American citizen. Um, I was born in the United States, uh, but I actually grew up overseas in Indonesia. Um, my family moved there when I was three, and then I came back to the States when I was 18 for college. Uh, and let me just say that viewed from the outside, it was really difficult to see America as like, a universal good in the world. Um, I, I did not, for, for, as somebody perceiving America's actions globally from the outside, 
I didn't think like, ah, and everything that America does is just so automatically wonderful. Um, I, I, saw, I saw a lot of greed wrapped up in some of the things that America did. Uh, I saw a lot of selfishness wrapped up in it. And this is not, this is not an indictment of America uh, in a way that excludes other nations. I think, I think nations run by human beings tend to be greedy and selfish because human beings tend to be greedy and selfish. Uh, but I think, I think we run our risk anytime we adopt the language of God's chosen people um, and misapply it to America uh, in a way that causes us to, to again, do, do some abuse to the, to the text of scripture as it's actually given to us. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I live right now in the Middle East and we've been here for six months now and that exact fact has become abundantly clear for the first time, really stepping out into a different culture and, and context um, that is way more complicated than America's God's chosen people and everything we do is great. Uh, can we, I, I want to nail down, I think, maybe having this some of this conversation about uh the church and culture would be helpful if we take a, a specific example you've written uh you've written a book on uh called gay christian and celibate is that did i get that Close, uh, single gay christian single gay christian okay sorry i didn't have it written down um in front of me um there isn't maybe i mean abortion and issues around sexuality are like the two flagship culture war things. Uh, as someone who grew up outside of America, like you just said, came in when you're 18, um, have obviously done a tremendous amount of wrestling even around your, your sexuality to now be able to even write books about it and your, do ministry now um, uh, in that area. When the church has taken a like a culture war kind of stance, like we were talking about earlier, where it's an us versus them, this dichotomy, these are the people that are on the good side, these are the people that are ruining America, ruining our children, ruining everything. As someone who has your foot in, I mean, literally in both of those worlds, Obviously, that complicates things for you a ton, but I'm more interested in how does that, like, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. How does that make you feel as somebody who, you know, someone who is in the church and loves the church and who is also gay and is by, would be considered by some as an enemy um, of whatever, God's kingdom in America? I don't, know exactly how that frame of reference works but that's kind of the implication right how does that just walk us through walk us through like what that what that does what that feels like how that wrestle then actually gets like uh kind of fleshed out in your own in your own life yeah yeah i mean i mean and and maybe it's helpful to give kind of a kind of a crash course narration of yeah. like how 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 I got to my to yeah, my yeah. current my current posture vis-a-vis yeah. -vis sexuality. So though though I grew up in Indonesia, I, I grew up 
um, my parents loved Jesus. And so I grew up in Christian spaces, albeit uh, evangelical Christian spaces in Indonesia, which is a slightly different, slightly different uh, bag of cats than evangelical Christian spaces in America. Um, but, you know, enough similarities. And I went to an international school and eventually an international church and there was a youth group. And in the youth group, they still did that thing that I think lots of American youth groups do where they like split the boys and the girls up, which invariably means that you're going to talk about sex, you know? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. And the girls uh, always get the good room and the guys have to go into like some sweaty closet and sit next to each other and nobody likes to talk, you know, and the guy, the guy conversation could be over in like five minutes. And yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so true. Okay. So, so you've been there. So, you know, you know how that talk goes because the talk more or less amounts to like, look, boys, we know what you're going through. You want to look at pictures of naked women, but don't do it, you know? And, and, and so, so for me, initially I was like, I got it. No looking at pictures of naked women. And I discovered that I was like remarkably good at not looking at pictures of naked women. Um, like I'm, I'm like so good at it that I start to think that I'm like the holiest 12 year old in the world because I was like, they keep telling me this is what I'm going to be going through. And I was like, I think I've been spared because I just love Jesus so much. Um, and, uh, and you know, when I when I did finally realize that like oh I haven't entirely been spared the experience of having sexual attraction um, this is just not the kind of experience that I was sort of trained and braced to expect um, uh, when I when I realized that I was attracted to, uh, to to guys instead of to girls I, I very quickly went from feeling like the holiest twelve year old in the world to feeling like the worst possible twelve year old in the world uh, the one who was so awful that nobody had bothered to warn me that I might exist. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so, so that launched for me, you know, a, a series of, a series of investigations into like, what does this mean for my life? Uh, can I become straight? That was sort of the first narrative that I had available to me was like, you just pray enough, especially if you run in like some good Pentecostal or charismatic circles, they're like, look, we pray Jesus does the miracles. And to be clear, I'm all about like praying and Jesus doing some miracles. Um, Though I would, in retrospect, I did not have this. I did not have this sort of outside perspective at the time. But but let me, in retrospect, speak to like fifteen-year-old Greg for a moment. It is just intriguing to me that fifteen-year-old Greg thought that that the ideal state for him would be to no longer ever experience a temptation to uh, lust after the same sex, and to instead have that temptation be replaced with a temptation to lust after the opposite sex. Um, and, and here's how much I had bought into that logic, that there was this time, I remember I ran across a picture of a scantily clad woman somewhere. Um, and I was like, you know, I've heard that if I love Jesus more and my prayers were being answered, I would become straight. And I've heard that if I became straight, I would like feel things about this picture. So I took the picture and I was like, I'm going for it. So I'm just like trying to lust after this picture. Um, and again, in retrospect, I'm like, why? Why, Coles? Why? Um, but at the time, I was I was so convinced, and it, it it was it was again, it was in part this this culture war ish narrative that I had imbibed somehow or another that told me, look, straight is good, gay is bad, um, and 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 even I I think even when I even when I sort of thought ahead to myself and said, okay, what if uh, what if God doesn't decide to turn me into a straight guy. Um, what if I continue to experience absolutely no attraction to women, still continue to have, you know, to the degree I experience sexual temptation, it's still sexual temptation toward men. Um, 
what if God never changes that? Um, and what if God also doesn't change my understanding of sexual ethics? Like, what if I don't conclude, okay, it's, it's okay for me to, to pursue a same-sex relationship, which, and, and to be clear, I am also now in that place of saying, after revisiting the Bible, saying like, I'm still pretty convinced that the thing God calls us to steward our sexuality in is either marriage with a, a person of the opposite sex or singleness. I don't really see same-sex marriage as an option in the Bible for followers of Jesus. I recognize that it's a thing that exists in you know, civilly in America, um, uh, but, but I don't see it as an option for me as somebody following Jesus as far as I understand scripture right now. Um, and uh, the thought of that to me, uh, when I was growing up and trying very hard to become straight, uh, it, it, felt, uh, it felt terribly rude of God to allow such a thing, um, which had something to do, I think, with my belief that singleness was such an inferior state of being to marriage, uh, which again, I think they were doing a remarkably good job of accidentally convincing me of that in youth group, um, right? Uh, when, like, when, when the thing they're telling us about sexual stewardship is like, the reason you should not have sex right now so that you can have really mind-blowingly good sex when you get married, which is no longer an argument that works on me. Cause like I'm single and planning to stay that way indefinitely. So telling me like, don't have sex now for your really mind-blowingly good sex later is, is not a convincing argument. Um, uh, and, and so I've needed, I've needed to revisit some of those things uh, and, and it, to try to tease apart, okay, which parts of this did I actually get from scripture um, and which parts of this did I get from that dichotomous culture war mentality that said, let us, let us lay it out for you. Straight, good, gay, bad, right, 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 marriage, right. good, singleness, apparently bad, you know, like, uh, no sex good for now. So you can have sex later. And so like, I had to disentangle those, those narratives from the things that were actually true in scripture. Um, and I think as I have disentangled, um, I've come to find my life is, not any simpler than it was when I had when I had my nice two tidy camps, um, and yet I'm I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful for the for the world that I have found uh, on the other side of that investigation um, because it feels much more alive and and it no longer feels like my choices either become straight um, or else you know give up on following Jesus um, because that I think because of the culture war mentality, I think that was the choice that I felt like I had received when I was growing up, was either you can pray hard enough to become straight, or if that doesn't happen, you're just, you're just going to be hell bound and, and there's, there's nothing for it. Yeah. And I think, I, tell me if you think I'm wrong. I think that's how most gay people feel when they're trying to figure that out, which is why when we just beat that culture war drum and people are not dumb, you know, like when they show up in a church, they figure it out pretty quick, how you feel about certain, like people just can, even if you don't say it, they just have to connect a couple of dots and go, Oh, okay. This is probably how this is, is going to go. And like most people just, they, if the choice is I have to pray to you know, be my sexuality to be changed, or I can't follow Jesus. And even people who I think have a really good intention and want to follow Jesus. And so maybe even go through some attempts to, 
to change their sexuality and it doesn't, eventually that choice even itself falls apart because people, you know, I think people just realize, well, like, this is still who I am. So I guess that just means either I can't follow Jesus or I know at least I'm not welcome here because they tell me I can't follow Jesus. And so I'll go find somewhere, somewhere else. And I mean, that, do you think that's a fair, I mean, obviously that's a big generalization, but that kind of process, is that, is that close to what you experience or what you feel like? I mean, you've had, I'm sure a ton of these kinds of conversations with people. Does that ring true? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, and I think, I think a big part of that uh, has to do with uh, this, this flattening of uh, the experience of sexual orientation or sexual attraction um, and uh, choices about sexual behavior um, or uh, lust, which is a sort of a mental behavior, if you will. Um, the idea that all of those things can be sort of condensed down into a single word and like all of the, you know, so like when you say, when you say gay, what do you mean? Uh, you could mean an awful lot of things uh, that uh, there, there's a, there's a tendency that I see often um, among, among church people, um, especially among church people who have gotten a lot of their perspective on these questions from the culture war, um, because the culture war insists that everything must be this stark dichotomy. It's like, oh, anybody who is attracted to the same sex, um, if they have, you know, however much attraction they have, like that must mean they have an orientation that is also gay. And that must mean that they also, you know, X, Y, and Z, that must mean the following things about the way that they are choosing to steward or not steward their sexuality. Um, uh, and, and I think, yeah, the, the more that we, the more that we flatten those things um, and treat people as the, as the caricature that we imagine them to be. Um, I think we tend not to caricature the people who are in our own group because we know the complexity of our own group, right? Uh, we tend not to use phrases like the straight lifestyle because we're like, okay, I know a lot of straight people. They live a lot of different lifestyles. But then when it comes to gay people, somehow a lot of people are like, they must have just the one lifestyle. That's all I'm aware of. It's the uh, gay lifestyle, right? Right, like, yeah, as, as if there could be one sort of univocal way of, way of, way of living or being. Um, and so I think, I think the more that we can nuance our conversation uh, away from thinking of people in these, in these sort of siloed and stereotypable camps um, into recognizing like, okay, people are going to have really diverse experiences of the world. Um, and that includes diverse experiences of how they experience attraction um, uh, from who 100% only ever experience attraction to the opposite sex and never the same sex to the people who 100% only ever experience attraction to the same sex and never the opposite sex, to the people who fall somewhere, you right? Like the people who are like true dead center, like they just like, if it lives and breathes, they're, you know, um, no, that's, a, that's an unfair character of uh, bisexual people. Um, to the people who are like, you know, like mostly have one experience, but occasionally have the other experience. There's, there's a lot, there's right. a lot there. And I think the particular kind of experience that somebody has, um, it doesn't make them a categorically different kind of human being. Um, but what it does is it shapes the questions that they will need to ask as they approach Jesus and say, I want to surrender my sexuality to you. Um, we can only really truly approach Jesus and say like, okay, 
my sexuality is part of me that I want to give to you. Uh, we can, we're only ready to have that conversation once we know what it is that we're like saying, what it is that we're, what it is that we're offering. It looks very different for me as somebody who has absolutely no interest sexually in women and really never has. Um, uh, when I say like, okay, God, like, do you want to call me to marriage or to singleness? Um, the, the, the nature of my attraction is an important part of the question. Not that straight people can never be called to celibacy, nor that all the gay people are never called to an opposite sex marriage, but it's an important piece of the equation. Um, and so I think uh, for, for us to, to be able to have that conversation in a way that acknowledges the nature of reality, uh, not for its own sake so that we get stuck on it, but so that we can constructively think about what it looks like for all of us to follow Jesus more effectively. Yeah. All right. I have a couple of, I have a couple of questions off of that. Let's, let's do like an impromptu, uh, like rapid fire-ish. Oh, okay. I'm ready. Okay. I'll try to, I'll try to be brief in my response. I don't know what the time limit is on this because I'm just making it up as we go, but I, there's so many, there's so many interesting things that you said there that I have uh question on. One is, so we keep, you, we keep coming back to this we talked about it with scripture, the culture war in general, where it's black, white dichotomy, you know, this side, that side, us, them type of thing. There's been another, even in the church, kind of split in dichotomy. And that would be because what you would call like non-affirming and affirming churches. Sure. Uh, give me a rapid fire answer on do you, what do you think about affirming non-affirming churches just as a general like concept because it it seems to me it continues to feed into the there's one side and then another side and both sides can actually look at the other one and say you're wrong you're the enemy you're not you know the non-affirming church will look over and say you're compromising the gospel and compromising truth whatever. And the affirming church will look over at the other side and say, you don't know how to love people and you're just stuck up and whatever. And we actually just are both just casting stones at each other. Give me your, your rapid fire thoughts on affirming non-affirming churches. Uh, you've picked, you picked such a great question for me to give a really short answer to. Thank you for yeah. such a, such a simple, uncomplicated question. Really, <laughs> really appreciating that. Yeah. Um, you know, to me, to me, the the most interesting question uh, to ask somebody about sexual ethics um, is is not so much uh, like what exactly is your view on sexual ethics, uh, though I think that's an important question. But to me, the more interesting question is the prior questions of um, what do you believe is the nature of the authority of the Bible in our lives, um, and do you? Uh, would it be okay for God to call us to absolutely anything? Or are there certain things that in your perspective, it's just not appropriate for God to ask of his followers? Um, to me, though, like those are interesting questions to engage around. Um, and, uh, and, and those are questions that I think sometimes, uh, whether in spoken or unspoken ways, can animate some of our subsequent conversations about sexual ethics. Um, when it when it comes down to the particulars of like okay if if i've got if i've got somebody who's saying to me like look i like i affirm the authority of scripture in our lives i believe that jesus is allowed to call us to anything um and then i sit down and read the texts that seem to relate to this conversation 
and I reach a different conclusion than you do about what they mean for our lives. Um, now, when, when we've hit that point, like we're having a textual disagreement, like we're disagreeing about the best way to read the text. Um, and, and I'm not enough of a, uh, I, I'm, I'm not enough of a like open-handed, like everybody's right to just be like, I have my perspective and you have your perspective. And it's, you know, like I, I genuinely think, I, I mean, I got a PhD in English because I really care about like language and texts and things. And I genuinely think that there is a best way of reading the biblical texts on this question. Um, uh, and yet, I also recognize um, that it, it, has, it has never been my job, nor has it ever been within my power to, to take the driver's seat in someone else's life and be like, let me make all your decisions for you. Um, let me conclude all your convictions for you. Like, you just go ahead. You don't have to decide a thing. Like, I will run the rest of I'll just of your read life. the Bible for you and tell you what it says. You hey, don't have exactly. to worry about it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I feel like people have maybe offered that to me a time or two. Um, and I have I've never, never taken them up on it. Not not because they're, they're not people I deeply respect, but because the, uh, it's, it's important for our convictions to be formed in conversation and in relationship with the person of Jesus himself. Um, and especially when it comes to the possibility of somebody living a, a life of very costly discipleship in the realm of their sexuality. Um, because much as I love being single and celibate in a lot of ways, um, I would I would openly admit that it, it is at times a very complicated sense of calling. Um, it's not always kicks and giggles. Um, and it's not something that I can do on the basis of somebody else's faith. Um, it's something that I do because I genuinely believe that this is the thing that Jesus has called me to. And it's it's something that I have I have received from him. Um, and so it seems to me that when I'm interacting with folks who don't hold that conviction, uh, the best thing I can possibly do uh, um, is uh, invite them into ever deeper relationship with the person of Jesus um, and seek to keep encouraging them to consider in the same ways that I want to keep encouraging myself to consider, like, there may be yet more in my discipleship that Jesus would want to call me to. Um, in the same way that somebody who is really gung-ho about Christian nationalism, but also very excited about Jesus, I might want to say to that person, like, I love that you're excited about Jesus. I think that there is a yet better way of you applying your pursuit of Jesus to this question of how you think about the United States as a nation. Um, uh, I, I think there's, I think, I think when all of us, when all of us get to glory, uh, I think there are going to be, we're all going to recognize just how dense we have been along the way. Um, and, and so I want to, I, I want to live now with as much humility and charity toward those who think differently than I do. Um, but I'm also really grateful that, uh, Jesus did not assign me to figure out like who's in and who's out on every on every question. Uh, I think that I think the Bible calls us to to care deeply and and to pursue uh, to pursue holiness, to pursue obedience in every realm of our lives, and to call others to do the same. Um, and I I do uh, I do think that we all uh, when it, when it comes to the reckoning with God at the end of things. Um, I think we should all have some fear and trembling in our lives. Uh, I don't think any of us should, should waltz in feeling like, ah, 
what a breeze, you know, Got I, it. I've clearly conquered this because you, so this is okay. Okay. Let's, let's talk about, let's talk about Jesus depictions of eschatology in the gospel of Matthew. I know this is the conversation you've been wanting to have. Here we go. Here um, we go. We're aban- we're abandoning uh, uh, rapid fire and we're going, we're going to <laughs> eschatology in Matthew. I'm sorry. I'm, which I'm, is maybe I'm the totally, farthest. You're totally good. You're, which is maybe I'm, the farthest thing from all of your fire. requests. Yeah, 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 no, you're good. Um, uh, no, so so when 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 Jesus gives these gives these visions in the Gospel of Matthew um, of of how how things happen at the end of all things, um, what we see again and again um, is this remarkable element of surprise. Uh, so you know, in the in the parable of the sheep and the goats, and Jesus is saying, you know, like. Uh, like come into my father's rest, you know, for, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Um, it is, it's sounding in some ways remarkably like what, what uh, some people would excoriate as the social gospel, right? Like how dare you reduce, how dare you reduce heaven and hell to like giving people food and drink? Like that's something liberal. the liberals do. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, but, 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 but there is, I think, I think this is crucial that there, there is, there is an element of shock there that, that the people to whom Jesus has said this respond like, Jesus, we have no memory of doing, like, when were you there? Let us know, you know? And the goats say the very same thing. Like, when did we, when did we see you and not give you these things? Um, and similarly, um, uh, Jesus elsewhere uh, describing the end of all things says, you know, many will say to me in that day, like, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your, in your name? Didn't we prophesy and cast out demons and, and so forth? Um, and Jesus will respond like, I never knew you. Um, oh, which, uh, yeah, if, if, any, if anything ought to terrify us as we think about the future, that seems like it ought to be on the list. Um, it seems to me that there's a, there, there, is this, there is this element, uh, this element in which uh, in the end, things are boiled down to uh, the nature of the, the the depth of the recklessness of our pursuit of Jesus, um, and it's not something that we can create a handy checklist ahead of time and sort of mark it off for ourselves and be like, "Look, I filled out the checklist," and then hold the checklist up to the lives of other people and be like, "So and so does not fit the checklist. That's the real bummer. We ought to evangelize them a little more thoroughly." Um, uh, but 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 rather, it seems to me that, that that our posture, both toward ourselves and toward others, ought to be like, look, I recognize that the the line of good and evil still runs through every human heart, including mine, um, uh, and so my posture toward myself is the same as my posture toward others, which is to say, we're all called to be more deeply, more recklessly in love with Jesus. We're all called to continue seeking to figure out the things in our lives that we need to give up, um, and that has been my rapid fire using the quotation marks very loosely here that was my rapid fire response to your very simple question no 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 no. you hit on something really important there and then i, I do i still have one or two other questions that i from previous that i i do want to ask because i'm curious to get your answer the the idea that there for all of us that there is going to be some element of surprise in what it is that we are not evaluated on, but where we fall on that evaluation and that there are certain things that we will invariably miss and that we will invariably get wrong or miscalculate, I think should cause all of us to live with some kind of open, open handedness. Like, I mean, like, like you said, it's one thing if, if someone is just going to be, you know, on any of these issues is going to be closed-minded or, Hey, like, 
yet the Bible, we're just going to kind of use it as this token thing, but we're really just going to kind of do what we want and come to whatever ethical conclusions we want on, on any of these issues. It's another thing to say, Hey, actually I've done, I mean, there are people who have legitimately and sincerely wrestled with the text of scripture and with the history of the church and come out to different conclusions on obviously a whole bunch of issues. And we should all tremble on whatever side of any of those debates that you come down on to say, hey, when we get to the end, uh, we're all going to be surprised at how certain things shake out. And some of those things that you are very certain on, sexuality or whatever, it's probably going to be on that list for at least, you know, for a fair number of us and in some way. Um, so I have another question for you. Um, I mentioned the very beginning, one of the, one of the hallmarks, I think of this kind of culture war narrative, uh, is it's tie into, into politics is that the church has said we need to, because we, want to be people of the truth and America wants to now reject the truth. Uh, we'll just keep using the, the sexuality example. So a truth is marriage is only between a man and a woman. We're supposed to hold on to that truth and be the standard bearers of that truth. So now in the two thousands and then leading up to the Oberfeld case. And then obviously ever since it's like uh, we need to get, Supreme Court justices, policymakers, presidents, whoever that will basically make political decisions in favor of that truth that we hold at whatever cost necessary. Uh, because we, our main thing is we have to be people of the truth. Um, how do you, do you think, how do you see the church? I don't want to be paying it too broad because it'll, I think it'll be too difficult of a question to answer then because it'll just be too big. But um, do you think the church should be working to like overturn Oberfeld, like the Oberfeld, like the, the you know, I think I'm saying that name correctly, right? From Obergefell, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 2012. Is that right? 2012. I want to say it was later than that, but you could okay, be maybe right. 15. Okay. I don't know. Somewhere in 15 there. 15 feels more right. Okay. Maybe it's 15. Maybe it's 15. Um, do you think the church should be, or, or like, you know, um, abortion, whatever, should the church be at virtually any means necessary working to overthrow political ideologies or policies that it views are against the truth to use air quotations yeah um so if if this were the if this were the rapid fire round i would just say no and then i would be like yes i managed to answer a question quickly um but in the in the interest of in the interest of giving giving a bit more thoughtfulness around that um uh it it it, it seems to me when i when i look back at church history uh it seems to me that political power has never been a good thing for the church. Um, uh, the, the church has thrived in places where it did not have political power. Um, and when it does accrue political power, um, it, it tends to 
it tends to become corrupt. The, the, the power tends to corrupt uh, and the, the nature of what people perceive as the pursuit of Christianity tends to lose sight of the, the person of Jesus himself uh, and to be replaced by some sort of power structure. Um, uh, so, um, well, and, and I think too, like when we think about the engagement that, that Jesus has with the political structures of his day, um, uh, there's this expectation uh, that a group of people have that when the Messiah shows up, the Messiah will be this political leader who will overthrow Roman rule, who will yeah, take over. Yeah, the um, Exactly. And, and so, so we even have disciples saying like, Jesus, like, is this the time when you're going to overthrow the kingdom of Rome and, you know, instate the kingdom of God? Um, and Jesus' response is like, ah, my kingdom's not of this world. Um, that's not necessarily the tone with which he said it, but you know, that's- that I, The I've, air I've, is implied. The air, yeah, you can you can see that in the original Greek actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, it's, it's, it's just there, a yeah. series of alphas all in a row, yeah. Um, uh, no, um, or, or where uh, elsewhere where Jesus is asked to weigh in on a political question uh, when the Pharisees uh, come, uh, and, and they're like, Jesus, uh, what do you think about paying taxes to Caesar? Like, here's a hot button political question that we'd love to get your opinion on. Um, and Jesus' response is like, okay, like, let's see the coin, like whose face is on it? You know, like, look, it's Caesar's. And so he's like, yeah, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Again, we see, uh, we see this distinction being made. Um, here's, the, here's the kingdom of the world. Here is Caesar. The, the coin with Caesar's face on it, that's all, that's all this, this world kingdom stuff. Um, the, God's kingdom actually owns everything, including Caesar's kingdom. Um, uh, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, indeed. Um, and yet, uh, the fact that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not um, doesn't get used by Jesus to start a political rebellion. It doesn't get used by his early followers uh, to try to take over the government. Um, the, the reality of the kingdom of God transcending the kingdom of the world um, means that the pursuit of Jesus need not be expressed in some kind of political victory. Um, and so it seems to me that, that when, we, when we try to reduce the gospel to uh, a means of political engagement, um, then, then, then we, we've, we fundamentally degrade it into something that works in worldly politics um, which, which always turns out to be a disappointment. Um, and I mean, a, a, yeah, as a recent example, I think we could say um, the, the sort of Faustian bargains that were being made um, by, by some, uh, some blocks of voters in a certain recent election, um, uh, where the thought was like, look, we need so badly to have political victories. We need so badly to get these conservative Supreme Court judges we're just going to go ahead and put our political weight um, behind a, a rather reprehensible candidate. Um, now, and, and again, me calling that particular candidate reprehensible uh, is not to suggest that there are not reprehensible things about other candidates. The point is that like, uh, if you, yeah, if you, wanna, if you wanna roll with the pigs, you get muddy. Is that the expression right. or something, something like, like that? It? Yeah, yeah. Um, to the degree that you think like, ah, my faith compels me to play the political game. Um, then, then your faith will always cease to be that sort of beautiful, transcendent faith in the kingdom of God, and it will, by necessity, become a faith in the political machinations themselves. Um, and that always seems to me to be a loss. It seems to me to reduce some of the beauty of the distinctiveness of the gospel. Mm -hmm.
Do you guys have for one more? Oh, bring it on. This is okay. the rapid fire round. How right, long is, could it yeah, take? Yeah, how long could it take possibly? Uh, how, um, how, do, how does a church who's been in the culture war, um, I, and maybe let's just narrow it just for, for ease of being able to parse through it. We'll just, we've been using the sexuality example this is what you've written obviously the most on too, um, where your work is. So we'll use that. How does a church get out of the culture war ideology? Like a, a church who has used language like, you know, those gays or the gay lifestyle or uh, wanting to, you know, uphold the truth and, and, again, in air quotes that nobody else can see, but you like the gay people who are like ruining our children and ruining our country and however they want to frame that. Um, how do how do we, how do we try and get people out of that? Even if they still want to believe, Hey, you know, living out a, a gay lifestyle in an active relationship is wrong. Like I still believe in traditional marriage. I still believe in kind of a, generally traditional sexuality um how do we hold on to that truth because i i want to affirm their zeal for holding on to the way of the way that the bible calls us to and trying to call other people to that but it, the means at which they're trying to do that is just injuring people i'm sure you could tell a thousand stories personally of your own life and stories that people have told you of how the church has just shredded them over this issue all in the name of wanting to uphold truth because it's just we live in this culture war framework of good guys bad guys all of that stuff how does a congregation and i'm thinking in a in a kind of a group level not just an individual because i think most of these dynamics actually play out at that level how does the church begin to, to, to move in a different direction, to move in a different spirit? Mm. Yeah, I, it seems to me that so much of, so much of what's really helpful, uh, it comes from relational engagement uh, with, with people who either seem to seem to fall on the other side of our, our dichotomy, the, the, the people who feel like the enemy of our war, um, or else with the people who resist the nice tidy categories that we have created for ourselves. Um, so, so specific to the, to the question of sexuality, for instance, um, if, if there's somebody who would say like, uh, well, recognizing, recognizing that uh, I, I still hold these convictions about what, what I think scripture says about sexual ethics for followers of Jesus. Um, and yet I don't want my engagement with LGBTQ people to be just a fundamentally aggressive and negative one. Um, I think it's really helpful um, to interact with, with two different groups of people, um, both with uh, LGBTQ people uh, who are um, maybe uh, perhaps outside of the church, um, who are in various ways uh, in, in, on a whole host of things, not just things related to sexuality, but who are in a whole host of ways um, not living the sort of life that you believe Jesus would call his followers to. 
um, to, to yet be in relationship with those folks or, well, honestly, uh, they may not particularly desire to be in relationship with you either. And I probably wouldn't blame them. Um, uh, but but maybe to, to find a way to hear some of their stories, um, because I think what you'll find um, in the in the same way that, that you can find this in something as shockingly reprehensible as Harry Potter. Um, and again, please understand my irony. Bring it full it. circle. Yeah, yeah. Bring um, it full circle. Uh, I, th I think what you'll find is that there are there are both things to be cautious of and things to affirm. Um, uh, even in that group of people who you who feels absolutely other from you, um, and do you think, there are these. Do, sorry, oh, go ahead. Do you think that do you think that responsibility lies, at least in a group, thinking about this in a congregational setting? Do you think that responsibility lies mainly on, like pastors? I think I think it, I think it it lies both on. I mean, both for sure, lies on both. And sure. Yeah, but if we're trying to get a congregation to to change a whole group of people, 100, 200, 300 people, whatever it is, is it the best way, hey, a whole bunch of people need to just get out and make some new friends and hear some stories? Or is it, hey, actually the person that's at the pulpit needs to do it? Because if that person begins to maybe change some language and things, everybody else will, will turn. I mean, it's probably some mixture of both, but um, I guess maybe a better way to ask, ask the question would be uh, what is the pastor's responsibility in, sure. in turning that? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think, I think it's great when it, when it begins with, with pastors and, and other folks who are in leadership, who are influential in various ways um, I think if they can begin to, to listen, and again, I think it, I think listening in, in the context of the sexuality conversation, it's valuable both to listen to, um, to folks who feel sort of as far distant from you as possible. Um, and also, you know, there are, uh, there, there are, there are folks like myself who are like gay and celibate and love Jesus and like sort and of probably very, in your church. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and that's a, that's another thing that I think is really important to note that like statistically speaking, if your church has more than thirty people in it, then your church has some people in it who are not one hundred percent card carrying straight, um, and they may not they may not describe themselves as LGBTQ um, because some people don't prefer to use that language. Uh, they might say that they are uh, struggling with same sex attraction, perhaps. Um, or they might not even say that. They might just think it silently to themselves while they hear you name gay people as the thing that's killing America. Um, uh, but 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 they exist. Um, they're there whether or not you wanted them to be there. You don't really get to decide whether or not they're there. Um, you you do get to have some influence over whether or not they feel like your church is a place that would be safe for them to have that conversation with someone else. Um, but I think recognizing that that folks like that are present, uh, speaking as if people like that are present, um, and finding ways to begin to listen, whether it's an interpersonal conversation or I mean, there are you know there are books and and yeah, videos and podcasts yeah. and all sorts of things. Um, but there are, there are ways for 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 you. I, I say you now speaking sort of generally to the pastor, the church leader, the whoever. Um, there are ways for you to hear from. The voices of um, people who who might who might help you envision uh, some categories that are, that are a bit less 
uh, a bit less tidy and boxy, um, but so much more true to what actually exists in the world that that could open up so much more opportunity uh, to yeah. really invite people into Jesus. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I, I feel like I still have a bunch of questions, but we're running long on time. So we'll have to just probably have you back. And I feel like you kind of made a new friend, honestly. This has been so much fun. We chatted for like a uh, half an hour last night on Zoom while we're trying to figure out the internet to work and uh, Harry Potter. And you got me a point on the, the marriage scoreboard, which is great with my wife. And uh, we talked politics. I mean, like wh- what else is left, you know? Um, we've already talked about all the hot button, all the hot buttons. <laughs> and uh, so, um, no, I appreciate it. Real quick, where if people... Um, if people want to continue to think through some of these conversations, um, where can they find you uh, online? And, and then if there's any other resources that you would recommend them to pick up and read or a person to go follow or website to go check out um, and they can do some, some follow-up on this, where would you send them? Oh yeah. Let's see. Um, well, so if, if you want to find me, uh, You've got some options. Uh, you could you could go to my website, which is gregcoles.com or gregorycoles.com. They both send you to the same place. Um, uh, I, I keep kind of a list of like things that I've written in various places there. You could also read either or both of my books if you're feeling so inclined. Um, the first one is Single Gay Christian, which we talked about some earlier. The more recent one, uh, which just came out this February, is called No Longer Strangers. Um, uh, I get to tell lots of stories about growing up in Indonesia in that second book. Uh, so if you're keen for overseas stories, uh, that's that's the that's the way to go. Okay. Uh, and you can also you can also find me on like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and things like that. I'm bad at social media. Like I'm okay. just openly bad at social media. Uh, but I have them uh, because my publicist uh, at, at my publishing company tell, tells me that that is a good thing. So so I attempt to be not bad at it. For the sake of for the sake of blessing the people that I love, um, but yeah, uh, the, the, those are those are ways you can find me. Uh, as far as other resources are concerned, um, I mean there there are a couple of really great organizations uh, that I would recommend to you. Um, one, uh, which I am actually uh, in about a month here, um, I am picking up and moving across the contiguous United States, leaving my beloved Central Pennsylvania uh, for Boise, Idaho. Um, where I will be, I know, right? Uh, Boise, all right. Uh, for those of you, for those of you who are listening to us in an only auditory fashion, Max just made a beautiful face. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I've never been to Idaho. I have friends that live there, though. Oh, and, it's it's pretty great. Yeah. Where where are they? Oh gosh, what is the name of the town now? Uh, I can't remember what. Your friends it, actually sent me here to quiz you and to see quiz me. If you, see gosh, if you knew, so. I can't remember. Yes. Uh, they're right on some. <laughs> It's like some French name that's like right on some lake. It's gorgeous. Oh, okay. Nice. Um, but anyway, then I probably moved, don't know where it is either. They moved I don't there. Live there yet. They moved there literally just because they liked it and thought it was beautiful. And they've lived there now for, I don't know, nice. seven, eight, nine years, something like that. That's fantastic. Um, so yeah, I'm not just moving there for the scenery, though the scenery is lovely. Um, I'm actually going there to work with an organization called the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, they, and I should say we, 
um, uh, do, do a lot of work in terms of both the theological side of the conversation, uh, sort of talking about like, what does scripture say about sexual ethics, about gender identity, um, and then also kind of the relational side of the conversation, you know, what, what does it look for us, look, look like um, for followers of Jesus to, to really engage with uh, LGBTQ folks in a way that's, that's helpful and healthy. Um, there's another really great organization called Posture Shift uh, that does trainings for churches. Um, there's a conference called Revoice, um, which is designed specifically for folks with stories similar to mine who are like, I'm some kind of gay, want to follow Jesus and try to figure out what that looks like. Uh, there's, a, there's a conference for folks like us. We're okay. getting together in October, God willing, in Dallas. Okay. All right. Um, uh, so that's pretty cool. Um, uh, yeah, uh, loads of other loads of other good organizations that I could name. Sure. Uh, and we would be here all day. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've those used, are those are a couple starting points at least. Yeah, yeah, I've used you know where you're going, um, Preston Sprinkle, who founded and kind of runs that. I've I've read most of every, most of everything that he's written, and I've read a whole bunch of the stuff on that on the the site there um, to wrestle through some of this myself. So I yeah, that's it. Great work like that you guys do, and um, I'm excited for you to to hop on there. That'll be great. Hey, thanks. Um, yeah. Congratulations on that. That's fun. So, uh, I think with that, we'll have to go, uh, Greg, this was a blast. Thank you so much. Ah, such and fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'll have to come up with another reason, another topic to get you back on so we can just have more, have more Harry Potter trope conversations. <laughs> Beautiful. I look forward to it. And, and more, uh, nineties and early two thousands youth group stories, boy, that yes. brought me, holy moly. Did that bring me back? Uh, I have, not only participated, I have shamefully led some of those exact, exact things. And, uh, oh man. Okay. Before, before we get into any more trouble, we'll, uh, we'll go there. <laughs> <laughs>